So if we've been considering the, the sin offering, the anointed priest and the offering for all the people, both of them had the aspect that when the offering is made, the blood was to be taken and sprinkled before the veil. Part of the blood was used to, to anoint the altar of incense. This picture of access, this picture of access to the Father, this picture of access to the mercy seat, this picture that, that we can now pray if we're the anointed priest that has made the sin offering or that Christ was the sin offering for us, that is that anointed priest that this is about going into the holy place, going in from the holy place to the holy of holies. It's this picture of what God has done through Christ for all those who believe, all those who have been made a royal priesthood, those who are, are true Christians. And so both of these, these, both of those offerings, they have a picture of sealing a promise. That, that sprinkling of blood is a picture of what you do with the covenant. So Jesus Christ became the sin offering for His people so that they could be saved, so the covenant could be sealed, that they will have eternal life. They will go into the Holy of Holies. They will truly have their prayers heard in heaven. That's the picture of those first two kinds of sin offerings. And now we come to two sin offerings that are very different. And they're picturing something very different. The the animal still has to be killed. The blood is still captured, but it's no longer taken to the holy place. Instead, it's put on the horns of the altar, a burnt offering. Remember, horns are always a a picture of a sign of power. So this, while the one was about about the veil being being sprinkled at the veil, being accessed, the, the blood being unanointed on the altar of incense to show that the Christians, that that the church of Jesus Christ has true power in prayer. This is about the power of judgment. Because the altar burnt offering, as we've talked about many times before going through Exodus, that the altar burnt offering is the picture of judgment. So these sin offerings are not about going into the Holy of Holies. These are about declaring judgment. When I've been considering this passage, I think it's teaching a concept that the Jews didn't get, that many professing Christians don't get. They think Jesus Christ came to save sinners. But they forget He came to do more than save sinners. It says in 1 John 3.8 why Jesus Christ came. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ came to destroy sin and not just to save some sinners. So when we think of the first two offerings, it's the picture of God saving some sinners. These next two offerings are a picture of God destroying sin. Not about the salvation of the person making the offering but about God bringing repentance to people. Not repentance unto salvation, but people actually turning from their sin 
but it also means that the judgment is declared because there is a just God that does judge sin. And so it's a picture of that repents from that sin, that turning from sin, that's a good thing. But it is also supposed to remind them of the judgment to come, that they need more to turn than to turn from that detail or that sin that they did. They need to have a new heart. They need to have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. So when we think of Christ as a sin offering, we should remember that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to destroy sin. Not just the sin of believers, but the sin of unbelievers as well. The church forgets that. Being salt, being salt and light to the world, which is where Christ talks very, very near the beginning of the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's not just about salvation. That's about changing the world so that sin is destroyed, so that sin is put away. So we should recognize that Christ as a sin offering has an effect outside of the people who have faith in Him. It says in 1 Timothy 4, 8-10, through 10, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. When it talks about Him being the Savior of all men, he talks, He's saying that as the church is light to the world, sin gets constrained in the world. People, darkness gets put away. It doesn't make them believe. But Jesus Christ did more than call a people to faith. He called sin to be constrained in the world because he was manifested so that the works of Satan would be destroyed. Godliness is profitable for all things. Godliness is profitable for all things. In believers... It is the, the testimony and the sign of eternal life. But the destruction of sin is always profitable. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. The church is supposed to be declaring that righteousness, righteousness exalts a nation, it says in the Word of God. It's not just about those who are saved. It is about those who are about the work of Christ, which is the destruction of sin. But in the end, the blood doesn't go into the holy place. The blood goes on the altar burnt offering because there's still a burnt offering. Even as they're turned from their sin, even as their sin is destroyed, it's not enough for salvation. There's no work that can make you right with God. But God is still good that He destroys the sin in lives of believers and unbelievers. The sin offering of Christ deals with sin not just in believers, but in unbelievers as well. As Christ said at the Last Supper before He went to the cross in John 16, 7-11, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment 
of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He doesn't say that that the Holy Spirit was sent just to convict believers. He says the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world. And as you look back, the world has been convicted since Jesus Christ ascended to the Father. The world has been transformed. And it doesn't mean everybody was saved. It means that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of Satan. He came to destroy sin. And sin has been constrained amazingly. And that's the picture of this sin offering. It's about the constraint of sin in the world. It's not about access to the Father. So this picture of what God does in rulers, it's not about them being saved. And I think the rulers gets to be much more about authority. A better, if I was translating it, I would have used the word prominent. Those that are prominent. Those that everybody sees. God works in them in a a specific way to cause sin to be constrained in the world. And then also in common people. As we think of this offering, think of how God is cleansing the behavior of common people. And I know we look at our our country and we see our country moving so fast in the opposite direction, but it is so far from where it would have been 2,000 years ago. It's so far from where it was 200 years ago, 300 years ago, where human flesh was eaten, maybe 300 years ago, where human flesh would have been eaten where we're standing. Sin has been constrained. Light has gone out into the world. The church has done what it was supposed to do because of the sin offering of Christ so that sin was constrained and it was constraining the common people. That's what this passage is about. With that, let's go to the passage. Verses 22 through 24. When a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God in anything which should not be done and is guilty... Or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. So when a ruler sin, again, the term here for ruler is somebody who's lifted up. That's what it comes from. So it's not directly to accessing power, but obviously, you know, the leaders of thousands, the Sanhedrin, these people are lifted up. They're, they have positions of prominence. There's other people that have positions of prominence. And God uses people in positions of prominence to actually constrain sin in the world. So one who, this is about one who is exalted by the people. They've done something unintentionally. And as I've talked about the last couple of weeks, when we, that word translated unintentionally is used primarily in two places in Scripture to describe these offerings and to describe what somebody does when they have to flee to the city of refuge. And so there's an element of it that it is about ignorance, which is how the King James translates it. But there's also an element about it that it's like, the axe head, right, which is the example of the, of the person who has to flee to the city of refuge. His axe head isn't tight. 
he may not have intentionally tried to kill the person, but maybe it was through negligence, or maybe he didn't recognize that the axe head had loosened itself. But when it flies off and kills somebody, that's when you have to flee. That's unintentional. So when we think of the examples here of what unintentional sin is, it's that sin that you don't plan to do. If you're planning to do it, you are in rebellion to God. And you don't, and don't think the sin offering covers your sin. That's not what this is about. This is about the person that all of a sudden recognizes that, no, their sin was against God, even though they didn't think it was. When they look at their sin and they recognize, no, I have sinned against a holy and perfect and a God without sin, without blemish, without, without any shadow in them. And sometimes it could also be that person who's going through their life and they, they accidentally, by mistake, they go down to a path that destroys them, that catches them in sin. Not necessarily destroys them, but catches them in sin. So the real difference between unintentional and not unintentional is like the person who sits and plots and waits for the person to come versus the person who's sitting with an axe and swinging the axe and the head flies off and they kill the person. This unintentional is you're not trying to rebel against God. You're not thinking about it. You are in rebellion to God, but you don't recognize it. And it's if you do this against any of the commandments of God, Yeah, we should all know that if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. There's nothing about the importance of the commandment that says you now have to do a sin offering. I broke a big commandment. I committed murder versus I broke a little commandment like I took the eggs and the mother off that was, that was sitting on the nest. God says any of them require a sin offering. Any of them require us to turn from our sin. Any of them require us to deal with it. Anything that's against what God commands. Anything against any of the commandments of the Lord his God. And notice, again, I think it's making a distinction between the anointed priest, which is the picture of a Christian, and the congregation, which is the picture of the invisible church or maybe even arguably the visible church, well, probably the invisible church since it's about access. But this is saying that the reason that they stand guilty, the reason they need to make a sin offering is not because of their belief. The reason they need to do it is because God is the one that created them. Because He is the one who was and is and always will be. He is the unchangeable one. The self-existent one. And so because of that, he has every right to command us any way he chooses. We were created for his purpose. And if we violate any of his commandments, even the smallest, perceived smallest commandment, all of it requires a sin offering. And anything which should not be done. Again, the focus here is not on all sin because they're sins of commission. And the focus is not on sins of commission. This is sins of omission. Excuse me, this is, the focus is on sins of commission, not the sins of omission. It's not going, oh, you didn't witness to somebody, you need to do a sin offering. It's, you lied, you need to do a sin offering. 
you misled somebody into thinking something that was true that was not true, you need to do a sin offering, even if it was unintentional. This offering is about, about constraining sin in the world, not about causing people to become slaves of righteousness. Those who are saved become slaves of righteousness. They walk in the ways that God has commanded them to go. But this is about not walking in the ways that God has commanded them not to go. Again, it is guilty. It's not a false accusation. They recognize their guilt. This is about them understanding what is going on in the world. Them understanding the guilt that they have. And it goes on and says, or if his sin which he has committed, the first situation is where he knew it was wrong but didn't do it deliberately, like the axe head coming off the handle. The other situation is that he sinned out of true ignorance. He didn't understand the law of God. It's true for most people. That was true through most of the history of Israel. Most of the people did not know the law of God. They did not know what God had commanded. They lost the law. And there's many laws in his word. And the people didn't always know how, what was the right way to apply those laws. And so they would come to the knowledge of that. So when they come into that knowledge, when they recognize that what they were doing, even they thought they were doing it out of righteousness, even though they thought they were doing it out of worshiping God, they needed the sin offering when they recognized that no, it was actually contrary to the law of God. He does anything that falls short of the glory of God when he understands that he needs to deal with it. He doesn't just go, I will do better in the future. So often the church in discipline now, we think the person is just supposed to cry and say, I won't do anything else. I won't do it again. But here they had to go and they had to actually make restitution. They actually had to do things to demonstrate their repentance. The modern church doesn't believe in sin offerings. They just believe you make a... You just stand up there, you cry before the church and go, I know I shouldn't have gotten pregnant out of wedlock. Please forgive me. And then it all disappears. That's not what the picture of the law is. It's a lot harder than that. You actually have to show, you have to demonstrate, there has to be fruits of repentance, fruits that you truly see your guilt. So he shall bring his offering. He had to make the offering in the sacrificial system. He had to be the one who was doing it directly. If the sacrifice cost him nothing, if he didn't have to visibly do it, it wasn't his sacrifice, it was somebody else's sacrifice. And it was not pleasing to God. It did not cause him to have his sin forgiven. So he had to personally bring it. He couldn't send a servant to sacrifice it on his behalf. This is about making the sin of the ruler. Not necessarily this is a specific sin, because it doesn't say they had to confess why they were, they were killing the sin offering. But they had to confess to the congregation. They had to, to demonstrate to the congregation. They recognized they were sinners. They recognized that, that they had done things that were contrary to the will of God. And they had to demonstrate that to the people when they went in with their with their animal to slit its throat. They made it very clear before all the people that they were sinners. So they would offer a kid of the goats. 
in this passage this morning, the kids use twice, and the words mean completely different things, which seems to me to be a translation issue. I don't think I would have used the same word. This word kid comes from shaggy. And when we think of goats, we usually think of goats are used for milk or goats are used for meat. They would think of goats and say they were used for wool, just like sheep were used for wool. So a kid of the goats in this case is not like a young goat, like when we think of kid, we think of a young goat. This is a big goat. This is a a productive goat. This is a goat that has a lot of fur on it. This is the most valuable type of goat. So the, the ruler had to bring the most valuable goat. Not like a little kid of the goats. Like when we think of kids, we think of them as baby goats. The next word for the common person, that's what the kid means. But here it means like the most valuable kind of goat. A mature goat, a shaggy goat. One that has its wool coming in that, that you can sell the wool and make money off of it. But even though it was a valuable goat, remember, the, the sacrifice of the priest, the anointed priest, was a bullock. A bullock's worth a lot more than a goat. When you're using ox to plow your fields, you're using ox for work. The animal itself is bigger. It's on a different scale. And it's important to recognize that. Even though the, the ruler was supposed to give something that was much more valuable than what the common person gave, it still wasn't nearly as valuable as what the anointed one had to give. It wasn't nearly as valuable as what the congregation had to give. So the priest, the picture of Christians, they had to make a greater sacrifice for their sins. And it's this picture like in 2 Corinthians 7, and I'll keep coming back to 2 Corinthians 7. It's this picture in 2 Corinthians 7 where when sin is exposed, you have worldly sorrow and you have godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow produces real things. It produces the stopping of the sin. That's a real thing. But godly sorrow, it's a much bigger sacrifice. You have zeal to clear your name. You want to vindicate yourself. You want to show that you're no longer guilty in the matter. The two are as different as a valuable goat versus a bullock. You have the the worldly repentance, which doesn't lead to salvation. And you have godly repentance that leads to salvation. You have the sacrifice of the anointed priest, which is about salvation. And you have the sacrifice of the ruler, which is not about salvation. It's about turning from sin. So the sacrifice of an anointed priest has to be a lot more serious. And then it's a male without blemish. And again, since it's a picture of Christ, it had to be male. It had to be without spot. Christ did come down to bring down the prominent. Or did come to bring down the prominent. Remember when we went through Daniel some years ago. And you have Daniel 2 where you have this, this vision of this statue. And then there's this, hand, this stone that's cut without hands that destroys all the kingdoms of the earth. That it grows to be a mountain. And it makes the kingdoms of the earth like chaff on the summer threshing floor. That's... That's the sin offering of Christ. He doesn't say say he'll save all the people in those kingdoms, but he does say that he will change them. He will destroy them. He will destroy the, the, the wisdom of them. I think that's the picture here. Jesus Christ came to bring down the prominent. 
Jesus Christ came to bring down the earthly rules, earthly rulers that rule for themselves. And again, you look now compared to 2,000 years ago, and you look what you know, people talk about authoritarian governments. They're nothing like they were 2,000 years ago. They're nothing like they were at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Because Christ is the sin offering that is causing the rulers of nations to change. And it had to be without blemish. Christ had no sin. But think about it, even as the picture of, of the common person, you can't, you can't sin in your offering to make your offering acceptable to God. When we do things, like with, with godly sorrow, when we do things to clear our name, you're not allowed to sin in order to clear your name. It has to be without sin in order your sins to be forgiven. We can't think, okay, we're going to repent from a sin and now I'm going to turn to another sin. And we need to recognize how frequently that happens. Is that people think that they can repent from their sin and they go too far and they do things that cause... I mean, I can think of stories, none of which I really want to relate, but stories that I know of where people, they go, oh, I see my sin, and then they go and sin against others to clear their name. That's, it has to be without blemish for it to be an acceptable sin offering to God. So then he shall lay his hand. Again, he is visibly doing this. He's testifying that he has responsibility for sin. And he lays his hand on this, this big goat. He lays his hand on him to transfer responsibility for his sin to that animal. He's doing this in front of the people. I mean, think about that. You see Nebuchadnezzar, before he eats grass like an ox for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar never would have done this. He never would have said he's a sinner. He goes, look how great I am. And that's typical for every, every ruler after that until Christ comes. Caesar's going, I am God. And then Christ comes. And all of a sudden, rulers are testifying that they're just men that are sinners. The prominent are not set up as a separate class of people. This is how God is working out his reality in the world. And he does it by making them confess their sin. And this is what they were supposed to do then. They would visibly, visibly, not, not verbally, but visibly by laying their hands on the animal, they'd be testifying, I'm a sinner. I'm in rebellion to God and I need to repent. So he would lay it on the head of the goat. Again, laying the hands on the head, because the head is in control of the body. It's transferring the responsibility to the whole goat. And then he would kill it. Again, the ruler had to kill it. He was not to designate someone else to kill it for him. It's a picture that his sin against God, even if it was done by accident, even if it was done by ignorance, it still required the shedding of blood. Every sin that we commit, every sin that we commit, regardless of how small, any time we transgress the law of God, even if it's because we didn't know this is what God has commanded, even if it's because we misinterpreted how we were supposed to apply the law in a given situation, it requires a sin offering. It requires the shedding of Christ's blood. 
That's how deep our sin is. That's how far Christ's sacrifice was to destroy the work of the devil, to deal with sin. Every sin requires the the sin offering to be sacrificed. So they'd kill it at the place where they killed the burnt offering. Remember when we were talking about the offering for the priest and the offering for the congregation, you would have on the one side, you would have the holy place, you'd have the tabernacle, which then you go through that and you find the holy of holies. And on the other side, you would have the altar burnt offering. So it's this picture that you're standing before damnation in heaven as you're offering that bullock. That's not where they offer this one. They offer this one to the north of the altar. They offer this one the same place where they did the burnt offerings of the flock. So just like the burnt offering, the bullock was done between the door of the tabernacle and the altar burnt offering, the animals of the flock, it's not the same picture. It's not heaven on one side and hell on the other side. You're just by hell. Again, this picture is not a picture of eternal salvation. This picture is a picture of turning from sin. So they would still do it before the Lord. It was still done to be seen by God. It would have an effect on the world. He makes the the rulers are supposed to do this where everybody would see the prominent person, whoever it is. They would still see him going, I'm a sinner. They would still see him kill the animal. They would still see that blood had to be shed. But the reason he was doing it was to God. When we see our sin, we have to repent to God. It's God who we sinned against. Yes, we may have second, secondary ways sinned against others, but it's our sin against God that has to be paid for. So then it says it is a sin offering. It's still a sin offering. It's still the same exact word that was in the first two cases. Even though it's a picture of something completely different, It's still a picture of how God deals with sin in the world. Some, he makes them anointed priests that come in. Some, he has a body that is in the world that will go into the Holy of Holies. But Christ died to deal with sin in the world, not just sin in believers. And so this is still a sin offering. This is still a picture of what Christ is doing in the world. Even if it's not about restoration, because Christ did more He came and did more than just cause a people to come to salvation. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Verses 25 through 26. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And he shall burn all its fat on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. So the priest shall take some of the blood. As with the other sacrifices, since the blood is the picture of the life of the animal, since the Bible says the life is in the blood, when they transfer that responsibility for that sin to that animal... They catch the blood as the symbol of what that animal was sacrificed for. So for the first two types of sin offering, the priest and for the congregation, they go into the holy place and they sprinkle it at the altar or at the veil and they anoint the altar of incense. 
It's about access is what that sin offering is about. But when the ruler does the kills the animal, the blood is still collected because it's saying what the blood does, what the life of that animal was for. And so then he would take that bowl of blood and of the, he'd take the blood of the sin offering with his finger. Again, it's very personal. And this isn't the ruler. This is what the priest is supposed to do. And when we think of priest here, remember, yeah, as it says in Peter, we're the royal priesthood. This is talking about what Christians, right? That we're supposed to, this is the, what the divine service, when we take this type and we apply it, this is what the divine service of Christians is supposed to be. The ruler sins, the ruler makes a sacrifice, the ruler has this picture of worldly sorrow. And this is what Christians are supposed to do in that case. They would, you know, they would take physically, they would dip their finger in that blood. And they would personally do this for the priest, for the, excuse me, for the ruler. They would take the blood and they would put it on the altar burnt offering. They would be the ones that would be going, this is what it's about. You're mourning over your sin. That's not enough. That's still, that's just a testimony. You have sinned, and that proves that you deserve eternal judgment. The one is a picture when they anoint the altar of incense. It's about now your prayers have power with God. When the ruler does this sacrifice, it's now you recognize that you deserve eternal damnation. It's about the power of the altar burnt offering. It's about a, the power of the picture of hell. That's what this sin offering is about. Christ died not just to cause some people to be saved. Christ died so that the world would stand guilty before God. They already were guilty, he says, but it's to make their guilt clear. So he would put her on the horns of the altar burnt offering to testify to the power of the judgment of God, to the reality of it. And he would pour its blood, the rest of the blood, except for the little bit that was used to anoint the horns, it was poured out at the base of the altar burnt offering. Remember with the burnt offerings, it was sprinkled about, it was about creating this boundary, so it was a picture that the blood of Jesus Christ separated you from the judgment. That's not the picture here. The picture here, it's a testimony of the power of the judgment by anointing the altars, the horns of the altar. And it's a picture of the blood being poured out, not being separated, but being poured out at the altar. To show this, the sin offering for the ruler was about making the judgment to come known. It was about increasing the power of the altar of the burnt offering. Everyone will either trust in Christ as their substitutionary offering, their substitutionary atonement according to the burnt offering, or they will be the burnt offering. And the sin offering is a warning. Sure, God will forgive you of this sin, but you're still headed to be a burnt offering. You're not protected through the blood of the, of the sin offering. You're not protected from being a burnt offering. 
the priest pours out the blood of the, burnt, of the sin offering. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make it clear to people. You see you have sin that testifies that you are in rebellion to the living God. And sure, turning from that sin, he will forgive you that sin, but it doesn't mean you have access to heaven. You should just be afraid of the judgment to come. So then he, the priest, would burn all its fat on the altar. Again, this is all the fat of the animals. It's that fat related to the entrails, like we've talked about multiple times before. Because it's like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. In the same way, the same picture of it being purified in the inward parts. But in this case, it's not a picture of being purified to, to salvation. The world is far, sin is far more constrained now than it was 2,000 years ago. But it doesn't mean there's more people saved. It just means there's more people whose sin is constrained. The effect of Jesus Christ is the sin offering is affecting the world. It is causing sin to be turned, to be to be cleansed. It is causing sin to be purged. It is causing, like in the parable of the ten virgins, it's causing those five virgins that do not have the Holy Spirit to still look clean, to still look prepared, to still look ready to be married, dressed in white. Notice one thing that it doesn't talk about here. It talks about burning the fat. If you remember, what was very distinctive about the sin offering for the anointed priest is after you took this bull, you cut out its entrails, you cut out all the fat, you put the fat in the kidneys and part of the liver, you put that on the altar burnt offering and you burned it, and then you took the whole animal and you took the whole animal outside the camp and burned it. The same for the congregation. Because that's a picture of Christ. That's a picture that we are to join him outside the camp. That's not what they do with the rest of the animal here. It doesn't say it here, but it says it in Ezekiel that the, the sacrifice of the sin offering is then eaten. So see the picture, the difference in picture. The sin offering for the priest, the sin offering for the Christian, the sin offering for the church, that causes the church or that priest, that, that Christian, to be outside the camp, to be separate from the world. The picture for the ruler, the picture for the common person, is that that sin offering gives them blessings in this world. Their sin is turned from. The person who sees their sin, mourns over their sin, turns from their sin. There's real blessings in this life. But it's not about being holy. It's not about... Yeah, the person who commits adultery, when he stops committing adultery, his life will be better. The person who's filled with anger all the time, when he stops being angry, his life will be better. But that doesn't mean that he's acceptable to God because there's no work you can do to make you acceptable to God. But this is the picture of the sin offering, that the sin offering is, is a temporal blessing, the sin offering of the rulers and the common people. Unlike the sin offering of the, the anointed priest, unlike the sin offering of the congregation, which is about a transformation, it's about being a holy people, a separate people. This is about, it's a blessing in this world to be turned from sin. So the priest, again, it's the work of the priest. This picture of Christ and the picture of us is priests on the order of Melchizedek to deal with people who really sorrow over sin, 
And so the priest shall make atonement for him. So that word atonement, right? As soon as we think of atonement, we think of being saved. But that's not what the word means. What it means, it's translated atonement. What it means, it's that's covered. But there's a modifier here that wasn't a modifier for the first two sin offerings. For the first two sin offerings is, and they will be atoned for. Here it's, they will be atoned for him concerning his sin. For these offerings, it is not about being made right with God. It's not about being atoned for with God. For you, it's about being atoned for for this sin related to you. So God can forgive people's sins without without changing them, without making them acceptable in the beloved. God really does through the conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin. He can really look and he can really go. That sin is covered. You've dealt with it. You've truly tried to deal with it. I'm not going to hold that against you. And you still stand guilty and you still stand completely prepared for the altar burnt offering because God hasn't made atonement for you. Your sin has been made atonement for. We need more than that. We need all our sin atoned for and not just some specific sin that we recognize and see as more is worse than our other sins. This is about a particular sin being covered, not being reconciled to God. The first two sin offerings were about being reconciled to God where you burn it outside the camp. This is about this is about the sin that you made the offering for for to be forgiven for it. It shall be forgiven him. God will not hold them accountable for that sin. But even with that sin, the blood goes on the altar of burnt offering because they have more knowledge of their sin before God that God will judge them for, even as he doesn't judge them for that sin in particular. 27 through 35. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering as kid of the goats a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger Put it on the horns of the altar burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat, as fat as removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offering made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin which he has committed, that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. 
So now we deal with the fourth group of people. If any one of the common people, and again, this anyone, it's man, woman, child. It is not, it is not restricted to males. It's not restricted to adults. It's anyone of the common people, anyone that, that's left. If they sin unintentionally by doing something, and again, it's not the person who's shaking their fist at God, the person who's in open rebellion to God, that's saying like Satan, I will defeat you. But those who see that they have sinned, they weren't trying to sin, weren't deliberately working to sin, but they sinned against any of the commandments of the Lord, not just the ones that people agree with, but those that they don't. Anything that's against the commandment of God that produces guilt that needs to be forgiven, if they do anything which ought not to be done, God is the lawgiver. He says what you're allowed to do. If you do anything that he says you're not allowed to do, then you're guilty. Then you need forgiveness. So, And they're guilty. Not just accused not even just accused by themselves, but truly recognize their guilt against the creator of all. Or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, again, this is the same as as the other two, or the other three types of sin offerings. When they see their sin, when it's pointed out to them, which is what Christians are supposed to be doing, it's what priests do, they declare the law of God. That's what we're supposed to tell people. And so when they do this and they bring their offering, then he shall bring his offering, just like the ruler. They had to bring an offering. It wasn't for them to do. They need to deal with their own sin. They need to recognize their own guilt. I think a lot of times in evangelism, we want to push and tell people, go, yeah, I'm guilty. That's not enough. They need to see their guilt. It's not just them saying something to appease you. I think people push way too hard in evangelism. Instead of just shutting their mouth with the law of God, they want to make them say things that they don't really believe. That's not helpful. But if they truly see their sin, then he's supposed to bring his offering of a kid of the goats. And again, this kid is not a shaggy goat. This is not a a valuable goat. This is about a small goat. This is about a young goat. This is about a, a less valuable goat. In this case, it's a female without blemish. Again, it still needs to be without blemish. It's still the picture of you can't sin in order to have your sins forgiven. If your sin's going to be forgiven, you have to turn towards righteousness. But it's a female. And I think as we go through these offerings, when it's a female, it's really a picture of the work of man. When sin becomes apparent to someone... And they really sacrifice to be cleansed of their sin. They really work to turn from their sin. But without the power of God, without Christ's sacrifice, without Him doing the cleansing, even without Him cleansing the nation like He does with the prominent people, then it's just man's work. But God, when He does it, for the sin which He has committed, when they see their guilt and they try to work out, they try to turn from their sin... And he's supposed to go and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. Again, they see their responsibility for their sin, and they transfer it to the animal. They transfer it to the kid of their goats. 
and then they kill the sin offering, and they do it at the same place. Again, the, the sin offerings of the flock got killed to the north of the altar, burnt offering. They would kill it at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger. Again, this is what the, the priest has a real, war, real role when people see their sin. As Christians, we have a real role to go, you recognize this is sin. And as soon as you recognize that it is sin, you are testifying that you believe there is someone who sets a standard. So when the common person goes, yeah, I sinned, that was the wrong thing to do, they've testified they they deserve the altar burn offering. That's all it takes. And the priest is supposed to deal with that. The priest is supposed to make that known. The priest is supposed to make that clear. So then the priest shall take some of the blood of his finger on his finger and put it on the horns of the altar burnt offering. Again, the horns of the altar burnt offering are about making it clear that there's judgment to come. When somebody sees their sin, when they work to turn from their sin, if all you do is help them turn from your, their sin and not anointed the altar a burnt offering and not said, look, this is about the judgment you deserve. You lied and you can go make it right. You slandered somebody. You can go back and apologize. You can tell everybody that you, you slandered them and you can deal with all that. But understand, that doesn't make you right with God. Instead, it makes it clear that you're not right with God. That's what we're supposed to do when people sin. And pour out all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. Again, we're supposed to make people see the weight of their sins, see the judgment that's to come. And that's why they would pour out the blood at the base of the altar to show the worthlessness of their works because there is no work that they can do. There is no repentance that they can do. They can do repentance to cause God not to judge them for their sin. There's Bible passages that say that, but that doesn't make them enter the Holy of Holies. There is no work that we can do that can make us right with God. It has to be the work of Jesus Christ. So all the remaining blood is poured out at the base of the altar to show the worthlessness of their works. All it does is lead to the altar burn offering. All it does is lead to burning in hell for eternity. And again, so the priest removes all of its fat, all of what's considered the best part, that picture of pleasure in the world. The fat's removed from the, as the fat is removed from the sacrifice of peace offering, so it's the same picture that it was done, and then it gets burned on the altar. And it says that it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. Which is interesting because it doesn't say that about the ruler. It doesn't say when the fat's burned that it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. It doesn't say it for the for the congregation when you burn the fat of the bullock. It doesn't say it for the anointed priest. This is the first time in a sin offering that it says that the aroma is pleasing to God. And it could just be succinctness in the te- text. It said this a lot of times every time fat gets burned. But probably at least it's a picture that, that God is... There's a sense that God is pleased, not in the sense that with only through faith can you please God. But God is happy when people stop sinning. Even when they don't believe, he cannot bear to look upon evil. When people 
even with worldly sorrow, when they stop doing what is wrong. God is pleased by that. No pleasure that can come close to earning their salvation. No way that because He's pleased that they, that they stop sinning in a certain way that He's now going to say, okay, you're my son. You don't earn sonhood. But He prefers that they stop sinning than they continue in sin because Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, which is sin. So the priest shall make atonement for him. It's the priest who intercedes. The priest makes atonement. Even when someone does work to clear their name of a particular sin, the only way that God forgives that is through the work of Jesus Christ. It's through the work of declaring who God is, that he rose from the dead, and he sent his spirit to convict the world of sin, and it shall be forgiven him. He's not given eternal life, but that sin shall be forgiven him. Then it goes on with another very parallel passage to the last one, which if he brings a lamb to a sin offering, and this is almost identical to the goat. It's interesting here that it's put after goats, because if you look at the, the value of animals, the value of animals would have been a bullock, then a sheep, then a goat, then the birds, like in the burnt offering. But in this case, it puts the sheep after the goat. And I think it's to show it doesn't matter how good, your, how good your works are, how well you clear your name after you sin, whatever good work you do. You might do the good work of a goat or you might do the good work of a sheep, but it's all the same in the eyes of God. It's good that you turn from your sin, but none of it comes close to you being made right with God. Instead, it just makes it clear that there is a God who judges the person who sees his sin and goes, oh, this was really terrible what I did, and does all kinds of work to clear his sin when he makes the offering of a sheep, the blood still poured out at the, bur- the altar burnt offering because there's no work we can do that will make us right with God. It required Christ as the sin offering. So again, to bring a female without blemish, Again, I think that represents the work of man. The work needs to be acceptable work. It needs to be in line with God's word. You lay your hand on it. That picture of that you had to be going, I'm doing this to to clear my name. I'm doing this to the intention of making restoration. Then you put it on the head of the sin offering. You're the one that has to make the sacrifice. You can't have somebody else do it. Again, you kill it north of the altar. It's not about showing the difference between heaven and hell. It's about declaring the just judgment that is due for the sin. Again, it's a good thing when people turn away from their sin because Christ came to destroy the work of Satan. So God writes in Ezekiel 33, 1 through 15. No, that has to be like 12 through 15. Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. If he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statute of life, statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. God is pleased when people turn from their sin. I think too often the church just ignores that and just wants to make it about salvation. But God is pleased when people turn from their sin. Turning away from sin is 
not something that's an offering that's ignored by God. It's not one that buys salvation. But it is better to sin less. So then they go where they kill the burnt offering. Again, it's associated with the burnt offering, but it's not as a substitutionary atonement. It's actually a testimony against them, which is why the blood is anointed on the horns of the burnt altar burnt offering. They recognize their sin, but they won't submit to God as Lord. It just increases the visibility of their guilt, even as God forgives them from that sin. So the priest takes some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, puts it on the horns of the altar burnt offering, pours out all the remaining blood at the base of the altering, at the altar. It's all the same picture. It's this picture of when somebody is crushed by their sin, the priests, the Christians are supposed to go, recognize what this means. It's not just about this little sin. This means you need a savior. It means you're subject. Any sin is a, is a, anybody that recognizes their sin, it's an opportunity for Christians to go recognize you can turn from this sin. You can stop drinking. You can stop looking at women to lust after them. You can stop looking at pornography, but none of that is enough. God can help you do that, but none of that is enough. All that does is testify you know there's a God, which means you know there's more judgment to come. Then he shall remove all its fat, as the fat of the lamb which is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Remember the lamb had fat in very different places than the other animals did. That had It had a fatty tail you know, where it was as much as 20 pounds of fat right at the tail, so you had to cut it off at the backbone. This is the same thing, that, that lamb, that real blessings that come from doing things that are pleasing to God. It's to be burned up. Because it has to be a sacrifice to God. There's a lot of people who go and sin, and then they they do the restitution for their sin, and they just do it for their own pleasure. That's not the point. The point is they really have to be doing it to cleanse themselves of their sin, for it to for God to forgive them that sin. And then according to the so the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed. And and it shall be forgiven him. It's not atonement for him. It's atonement for that sin. Let me give you some applications. First is think how, how, as we consider this passage, think how messed up we are as a nation. When a leader sins now, or when a leader was sinned, they were commanded to give this offering, commanded to be visible by the people, commanded to be making real sacrifice for their sin. In our culture, if a prominent person sins, everybody chooses sides. Everybody, one, one side rushes to condemn without knowing the whole story, and the other side rushes to defend. You know, we see this even as the last few days. They've been, President Trump has been talking about how he'll be arrested next week. And you just watch what what Nancy Pelosi says versus what the, the commentators on, on Fox News say. It's night and day different. And nobody's really worried about his sin. All they're worried about is taking sides and defending it. That's not how God says sin's supposed to be dealt with. What we're supposed to do as a nation is for prominent people, when they sin, you don't cover it up. 
But this is what the church so often does is instead of dealing with sin and you look at all these prominent leaders in the so-called Christian leaders that fall, they've always, like Ravi Zacharias, people knew for years what Ravi Zacharias was doing, but nobody did anything. They should have done a sin offering. They should have made him do a sin offering like the Bible says. Make him admit his sin. Make it public. Make it known so that it can be forgiven. Too often what we do is we just want to choose sides. We want to cover up. We want to protect. That's not how you deal with sin. You deal with sin by making it known so that people turn from their sin. That's what expectation we should have for our leaders. And not just leaders in the church, leaders in society. We should be demanding, the church should be demanding that they actually deal with their sin. That's how the, that's how the world gets better. That's how the, the kingdoms of this earth get destroyed. Next application, recognize the breadth of things that require sin offering. Because every one of them, regardless of how minor it was, it required Christ to go to the cross, even if the person wouldn't be saved, but it required Christ to go to the cross to destroy the works of the devil. The ruler or the common person that repents of a particular sin that gives a sin offering for that sin is declaring the law of God that he's forgiven for that sin still has to recognize how many other things that he's guilty of to be cleansed of every sin individually by sin offerings. That's an impossible task. There's no way that you can go do work that pays for every sin that you did. Something greater was needed than the sin offering, the burn offering, that picture of substitutionary atonement. That's what was needed. Forgiveness of individual sins never fixes what we need. We're greater sinners than that. We transgress the law of God more than that. But even all those little sins recognize that all of them, for God to cleanse the world of sin, required Christ. Way back to the the Garden of Eden where, where Adam eats the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that biting that piece of fruit, that required Jesus Christ to die. That's how serious sin is. Christ's sin offering is useful in the world. He can break the power of individual sins. He can forgive individual sins, but we need more than that. We need a new nature. Next application. As we read the Bible, we should consider if we've, through ignorance, transgressed the law of God. And we can do this, and we can read the Word of God, and we can say, I've been doing this. And I need to stop. But if you look at the sin offering in the Old Testament, it's not just I need to stop. It's I actually need to clear my name. I actually need to deal with the sin that I did where I didn't even realize it was sin. How often as Christians do we go, well, what do I do with this sin that I now realize that I've been doing? I think a lot of times we go, wow, that's good. You stopped doing it without even going, well, how do you clear your name for what you already did? We have a responsibility to actually give a sin offering. We have a responsibility to actually clear our name for what we've already done.
We should recognize that if we confess our sin, He is just to forgive us our sin. But we also need to not remain in ignorance or think that we can just change and not think, hey, our sin had real consequences in the world. and We have to make restitution for that sin. Next application. People who are prominent, they have greater responsibility. In the parable of the faithful steward, Christ summarizes it in Luke 12, verse 48. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. The common person had to give a smaller offering. The ruler had a separate process so that everybody could know, hey, this is a prominent person doing this. He was held to a higher standard. This is what we're supposed to do. To everyone to whom much is given, much is expected. And every professing Christian who has received Christ, who has said they received Christ, they've been given the greatest thing. So they'll be held to the higher standard. That's why, that's why the third commandment says, do not, you know, do not be deceived. He will not hold them guiltly, guiltless who take his name in vain. Because they've been received, they've received much. And so they'll be judged the more harshly. People who are prominent have a responsibility. They have a greater responsibility. They'll be held to a greater standard. They have a responsibility to do more to clear their name of their sin. And obviously we can see this very clearly how it applies to elders in the church in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may fear. Those who are prominent, the sin offering looks different. It's much more obvious. It's much more clear. The work that's required to, to have the sins forgiven, if God has given you more, it requires more. Another application. As priests, according to the clear teaching of Scripture, all that believe are priests. We're supposed to deal with someone sorrowing over sin. And we're not supposed to do it in some, some far off distant way. They had to dip the blood or the, dip their finger. This is a testimony. You know, you know that there is a God who judges. We're the ones that are supposed to declare to them when they're repenting of their sin, when they're feeling the guilt, without faith and trust in Jesus Christ, without recognizing they need more than that sin offering, they need more than to go and do whatever they think is required to repent of their sin, make penitence for their sin. Whatever they do, they need more. That's our job. When people are consumed by worldly sorrow, the sorrow that leads to death, it will probably improve your life, but that's an opportunity for Christians to go, do you understand there's judgment to come? We have another application. We have the duty to make those who are sinning unintentionally recognize their sin. Too often when we think of Romans 3, we think of the first part but without thinking of the rest. 
verses 10 through 19. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of the peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's also part of the picture of the burnt offering. Or excuse me, the sin offering. They feel guilt for sin. They recognize their sin and we're supposed to point out to them the law of God so that their mouth is stopped. We're supposed to make them understand the level of their sin, the, the scope of their sin, how much it's affected every aspect of their life. That's the role of the priest. It's to make them recognize their guilt so that their mouth is stopped. It's our duty to make them at least have worldly sorrow by seeing that their sin is that they have sinned against God and they stand condemned before Him. Another application, priests also have a real responsibility related to the common people so that they turn from their sin, even if they don't believe in Christ. Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19 says, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. If you're not being a priest that's taking of the blood, you're not being a priest that's taking of when somebody is doing worldly sorrow and using it to anoint the altar burnt offering, their blood is on you. That's the picture. Either you're doing that, you're saying, this shows that you deserve hell, or you're going... I am standing guilty before God. That's the responsibility of the priest. That's the responsibility of every Christian. Another application is, remember worldly sorrow is not a bad thing. Godly sorrow that causes the sin to be removed from the inward parts, that causes you to be born again, clearly that is better to be reconciled with God. It's better to be the anointed priest that's making the sin offering. But the sin offering of the common people was still a blessing. The fact that their sin was constrained was still a blessing. The sin that you lied to yourself about, that you didn't really consider it sin, it's a real blessing to have it exposed that you turn from it. Second Corinthians 7, 8-10 says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Worldly sorrow produces a reduction of sin. Worldly sorrow produces a better life on this life. You don't commit adultery and your marriage will be better. Guaranteed. 
doesn't matter if you believe or not, guaranteed your marriage will be better. Worldly sorrow is useful, but not nearly as useful as godly sorrow. It leads to repentance. Because the end of worldly sorrow, the end of that sin offering of the common person who gets, who slits the neck of the goat, in the end, all it does is lead to the altar burn offering. All it does is lead to death. Worldly sorrow does have its benefits, but the end of it is just death. Make sure you see your sin for what it is. Rebellion against the living God. And truly turn, not just from your sin, but turn to the living God. The last application. Christians need to make sacrifices like the priests and not like the rulers. Obviously, we're supposed to, we're to make spiritual sacrifices and not physical the rulers to expose his sin, declare that he has sinned against God. But the priest has to do more. The priest has to bear the, the, the picture of going outside the camp and being burned outside the camp. It's not just repentance in a worldly manner, but as it continues in 2 Corinthians 7, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication... In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. I've seen many situations where people are offering the sacrifice, the sin offering, that's the sin offering of a ruler, of a common person, and the church goes, wow, they've sinned to repentance. They're saved. No, the sacrifice has to be bigger if you're really a priest. The sacrifice has to be godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow. The church way too often accepts worldly sorrow, which just is the idea that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy sin. Instead of saying that he came to produce in his people, in addition to that, to produce in the priest, diligence, clearing of your name, indignation against sin, fear, zeal. These are the things that priests of God, these are the things that Christians have to have about their sin. And not just feel sorry for it. Not just try to do things to make it better, the damage that you do. But actually desire to bring glory and honor to the name of God by dealing with your sin. And that can only be done through the true sin offering, through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you that you are a God who changes your people. You are a God who doesn't cause us to be like the prominent people who who mourn over their sin, or like the common person who mourns over their sin and then stays in the same place. You are the God that causes your people, when they mourn over their sin, to go outside the camp, to be a holy people, a people that are set apart by you, people that are distinct from this world, a people that look different, a people that walk in a different way, a people who have the scent of life to those who are living and the scent of death to those who are dying. Lord, make us more like that. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.